Hi, I'm Mike Digby, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 30 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This week, we speak to Mike Digby. Mike travels the world as a pro hitting partner. He's practiced with Rafa, Tsitsipas, Halep, Medvedev, Federer, Djokovic, and more. He gets to hang out at all the top tournaments with the top players' teams, and he gets to know them all. That sounds like a dream job to me. Mike tells us all about it. And importantly, he tells us 10 things he's learned from hitting with the pros. As usual, before we get started, I'd love to give a shout out to our podcast sponsors, Head, who's I've mentioned before, have released the new Head Prestige. Okay, let's get started and let's listen to Mike's story and the 10 things he's learned from hitting with the pros. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Hi, how are we doing? Good to be here. I've been seeing all your photos on Instagram the past, I don't know, six months maybe. And it's you hitting with Federer, Tsitsipas, Rafa, Halep, Medvedev, so many. I was like, how does this guy hit with all these players? So it's finally great to get you on the podcast and find out more how you charmed them into being your hitting partner. Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I've basically been doing it for... Well, on and off for, I guess, about a year and a half now, but mainly full-time for the last, yeah, probably eight, nine months. I originally started off uh, Wimbledon in 2018. Practice desk manager there kind of just invited me over and I was really keen to do it at the time I was playing college tennis in the States. And then that summer I was back home and, yeah, just practiced with loads of them. I was Ali Asim, Isner, Muguruza, Novak, just an absolute load of players and I absolutely loved it. And then it kind of all kind of blew up from there, really. I had quite a few offers to travel with a few players and, um, and yeah, ended up doing a lot of hitting over the last kind of eight months with Halep at Wimbledon, at US Open. I went over to China with her and then topped the year off by doing, doing the ATP finals with Federer and Sitsipas. So yeah, it's been, it's been, been great. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. I know we're going to, you're going to tell us 10 things you learned from hitting with these guys, but uh, yeah. let's get to that in a moment. First, how does, Federer contact you? Does he send you a WhatsApp or does somebody out of his team contact you? What way does that work? Yeah, so to be honest, every player is completely different. With Federer the first time, it was I was at the ATP finals and, and the tournament organizer basically said to me, look, Federer is looking for a hitting partner. Would you be around to do it? Are you, are you available? Are you free? I was originally there for the tournament and I've started off with Medvedev and then move on to Sitsipas. And then you know, when Federer comes calling, it's tough to really say no. So yeah, then the tournament organizers put me in touch with the agent and then and it kind of all, all fell from there really. And then and then and yeah, an incredible experience. Um one that, you know, hope hopefully, fingers crossed I'll be able to be a ticking partner again, maybe at Wimbledon. But yeah, no, even if it was the the only time it was unbelievable experience. Can't wait to hear what you learned from that. And some players, you say other players do differently. So maybe it's an agent, Feder's agent is called Tony Godsick. Is it him that reaches out or it's one of the other guys? Yeah. So it was him originally that the tournament got in contact with. And then after that, it was a lot of dealings with the coaches. So you had Ivan Lubacic, who did a, did a lot of it kind of to and fro and from me and him and just allows, you know, Roger to uh, focus on his practices, focus on his matches, take the stress off having to deal with, you know, arranging a hitting partner or whatnot. So yeah, after the initial kind of contact with the agent, it kind of boiled down to me and me and the coaches and then also the tournament as well. So I would go in the morning and the tournament might say, okay, yeah, 
you know, Roger's practice has been changed. And then, all right, cool. And then I'd get a message from Ivan saying, yeah, okay, this is the time, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, but every player is completely different. Some of them like to do it, you know, with them. Some of them like to get their fitness trainers to do it. You know, it's just very individualized. Okay. And tell me, it's, so you're a hitting partner. That You've made a conscious decision. I want to be a full-time hitting partner. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much, I kind of, I don't want to say fell into my lap, but when you do one or two players and they're successful, you then kind of get a bit of interest from other players and also tournaments and, and it kind of just all kind of flows into one. And I ended up doing a lot of it full-time, whether it was for a player or whether it was for the tournament. So yeah, and then it topped off at the ATP finals with, with Federer, Federer in November time. So then for me, the next progression then is to then, you know, go on and, and add the coaching element into it and travel, travel full time with the player as a more of a hitter slash coach, I guess. So you're not interested in pursuing an actual singles career or doubles career? I'd love to be able to do it, but I think like with a lot of, you know, the lower ranked, ranked ATP players, it's, it's finance so tough financially, you know, at the futures level. And uh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd, I'd love to say also my level was there, but I think it comes to a point when you kind of get 21, 22, you've got to be realistic with yourself. And you think, you know, where, where do you want to see yourself in five years' time? And, you know, for me, I, I would just get as much enjoyment and much satisfaction over helping an ATP or WTA player as playing myself. So, so yeah, I think that's kind of the path that, that I'm looking to take. And just two questions that come to mind right away. You question your level at your current age. Is it good enough? But your level is obviously good enough to hit with these guys. And what do you need to be able to hit with these guys? Like to hit with the best in the world. You obviously don't have to be the best player in the world, but what do you have to be good at? So yeah, you're completely right. You obviously have to have a, a good level. Like I played to a very, very good level. I was a junior, I was in college, played a lot of matches, a lot of practicing. But for me, the two main things that I found with my experience with the top, top pros is consistency. It's obviously key because they need to get a good rhythm, especially with match warm-ups. Um, they want a good rhythm. And also actually just being yourself, not trying to beat them. You're trying to help them. I think a lot of kind of juniors that play junior Grand Slam, that are good juniors, sometimes walk on the court and almost try and beat these guys. You know, when you're a hitting partner, your job is to make sure that you give them a consistently good ball, a ball that they want that's going to help them win their win their next match. So I think I think the way I play as well, I, I'm quite consistent with the way I play. And um, uh, yeah, it just seems to be something that the players in, enjoy hitting against. So. And do you have to be able to hit all the shots? You do, yeah. You have to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be quite versatile. You have to, you know, because again, like I say, every player is different. You might have, you know, two cross one line. So you've got to be pretty quick. You've got to be good at changing direction. Or some of them might say, right, can you, you know, put yourself in a corner and change direction after the third ball. So you've got to be quite adaptable and, and be willing to kind of, I guess, show all the shots and make sure that you can hit your serve, you can hit your volleys, you can hit your smashes. So that's something that, that I think some players are really, really good at. And, and sometimes, yeah, it, it can be tough. You know, it's not an easy job. You're hitting against arguably some of the best players ever. So, and they don't hold back. There's no, there's no holding back. They, they still want a good practice. So, um, yeah, you've, you've got to be versatile. And how do you deal with the tempo? You play Medvedev, and he's absolutely on the baseline, nailing balls yeah. at you. And you, like, you must be under pressure. You're under a lot of pressure. But what I've found 
is that you actually get used to the tempo. But I, I kind of thought for me that, oh my word, it's going to be, you know, the tempo is going to be so high, I'm just not going to be able to cope. But actually, obviously, there's a massive difference between when you put Medvedev in a match and, and someone that's maybe six, seven hundred in the world in a match. But actually, when you're practicing, the tempo's a little higher than what I would normally practice at, but it's manageable. Once you kind of get used to the tempo, it's okay. And you, you just, yeah, you still feel under pressure, but you feel you can hold your own. And even when you play points, yeah, you, you feel fine. I think, I think it's like anything. When you practice, if you practice with better players, you generally will get better. So if I'm practicing with the best in the world, I'm getting better at dealing with their, their tempo, both men and women. So, so you've definitely improved from playing with all these guys. Oh, 100%. Yeah. No, I, I've improved the things that you need to be good at to be a hitting partner. I think that's the one thing that oh, I've, yeah. I've developed is that pure consistency, that ability to be versatile and also that ability to kind of, if they do say, right, can we play some points to stick in it and give them what they would want in points. So for example, I don't know, let's say Federer's playing, you know, Batista Agu, Batista Agu hits quite a flat ball. So then I'd, my job would be on the backhand side to probably flatten the ball out a bit more as opposed to if I was playing, you know, on Rafa's forehand, it's, you know, it's be more spin. So just having that ability to kind of be versatile and I've definitely got a lot better at that the more I've done it. Yeah, well, it's definitely a great way to, if you can get some good gigs or long-term gigs to, to tour the world, to go to the best tournaments, it's a good passport. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, I've been to some some incredible places. I've played, played on Arthur Ashe played in Shenzhen, the first ATP finals. I played at the O2, I'm sorry, WTA finals in China and then at the O2. So I've played at some yeah, some pretty cool places. And and yeah, like like anything, it, if you do a good job and you, you put your face out there and, and you get along with a lot of the players and the coaches, then a lot of you want, you know, will want you for on a more full-time basis um, when you've had a bit more experience. So it's, it's, a, it's a great way of getting getting into professional tennis. Wow, like, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And what about payment? Let's say you're working at the ATP Tour Finals. So are you employed by the ATP Tour that week? Yes. It, again, very, very different depending on the circumstances. So if you're doing it for the tournament, yeah, then you're you're there with the tournament. So you'll get your, you know, your expenses, whatever it might be, depending on the tournament for that week. Whereas if you're with a player, then it's more, okay, it's just that player, they'll be paying expenses, giving you a salary. So, yeah, it totally, totally depends whether you're with, with one player or whether you're at a tournament. Okay, well, let's say where you're at the ATP Tour Finals and you obviously you'd hit with everybody at the start and then Federer goes, he wants to lock you down. Did that change anything? Um, no, not really. It's a good question because you, you think it probably would, but it, it actually doesn't. The great thing about the ATP Tour Finals is if they need hitting partners to, I say, not replace me, but to help out because I'm now doing it with federal or whatever and generally they can, they're pretty good at finding someone yeah. actually that week they invited the top two juniors in the world over to practice and you had Holger Rune and then another guy as well who I, I can't remember his name if I'm honest um, but he won junior Wimbledon this year um, so they both of those were there as, um, as young juniors to, to hit the guys as well um, which was a great experience for them so so yeah, yeah. They, they had plenty, plenty of hitters if they needed them. We, we've had Hall Grand. He was on our first ever Functional Tennis podcast. Ah, uh, nice. And how do you think he's going to make the transition to the pro game now? I think he's in good shape. I, again, I don't, I know him to say hello to, but I don't know him that well. But from what I've seen results-wise, both in juniors and now the transition to the seniors, 
anyone at that age, 16, 17, that's winning matches and challenges is looking in good shape. Um, I love the way he plays. Big ball, quick, good motions, good technique. I, yeah, I think it's more, it's, it's like with young Yannick Sinner. I think it's with Holger, it's more of a matter of time before he breaks through as opposed to if he's going to break through. So he's in, he's in great shape. Yeah, he's a great team around. Really exciting. And we'll hopefully have him back on at some stage. But let's move on to what you've learned from hitting with yeah. the pros. Okay. Do you have your list ready? Yeah, I have my list ready. So 10 things Mike has learned from hitting with the world's best male okay. and female players. Sure. So for me, the first thing which I've found, this is for both male and female, is the depth of shot. You know, when you're hitting with, with Federer, Hallett, the length that they get on the ball consistently, both cross-court, down the line, it pins you down on the baseline and you don't feel like you can really like attack the ball when you want to. So, yeah, the depth of shot is incredible. It, it makes it put you under so much pressure and, yeah, at the same time, it's just their rally ball, you know? So that's the definite first thing. And before you move on to two, how do they train that in a training session? I think it's, it's a lot of it's motivation, but maybe motivation is the wrong word, but more discipline. I think it's just the coaching staff and, and themselves disciplining themselves, right, okay, like my job here is to make sure that I maintain really, really good depth. So it's not, like I say, a lot of these, a lot, I think a lot of people think that there's like a magic potion to what they do. A lot of it is basic, basic drills, but they just do the basics unbelievably well. You know, if it is cross-court for 20 balls within, you know, I don't know, a metre of the baseline or, or a half a metre baseline and they hit it every time and it's just repetition, repetition. So, yeah, it's just discipline, I think. It's focus and it's just the focus gives them the discipline. Yeah, the focus, complete focus and almost belief that they're going to do it every single time. Yeah. Are they using a lot of cones out there? Yeah, cones, targets, markers. Um, I think when you get to a certain level, especially at that level, you know, I think they're that good that they can pretty much place the ball whenever they want. Um, so I think maybe when they were younger, they did a lot of that. But I think, you know, yeah, you get to that level, they didn't need any cones, any cones. It was just like, I know where I want to put the ball and that's where it's going to go kind of thing. So yeah, so yeah no, the depth of shot for me is the biggest thing. They used to say Pete Sampras could put a ball on a 50p kind. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. No, not at all. So Okay, so number two. So this is mainly what I've learned from Federer, but for me, it's the variation in spin and speed. So what I mean by that is when I was practicing with him, he can go like a, I don't know, like a flat fast ball. And then on the next ball, after I get it back, it's like great shape on the ball, loads of spin. He just has this ability to completely change the, the way the ball's coming at you and, and, and change kind of, I don't know, have, just to completely throw me off within a shot. You know, it's not like, he can hit with great tempo if he needs to, but then he'll just all of a sudden just completely change the trajectory of the ball and, and have me hitting the ball up shoulder height and then all of a sudden we'll not like knife his slice and You shank it. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. You know, he will just do it every ball that comes at you, you have to think. And normally when you're practicing it's like if you can get a good tempo, you almost like it just comes quite naturally. Whereas he makes me feel like I have to think about what I'm gonna do on every shot. So just the variation in the spin and speed that he has, the ability to change change that on every shot, whether it's your forehand or backhand, is yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. So it's a bit like you never get the same shot twice in a row. Often. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, um, and that obviously keeps you guessing, and that keeps all of his opponents guessing as well, because 
the amount of times I've seen him play in matches where opponents just literally just cannot figure out what to do is mainly because of, you know, he just never hits the same shot twice and constantly has his opponent guessing. And while we're on Federer there, what's it like returning to serve? Tough. <laughs> disguise is unbelievable, is it? Yeah, 100%. It's the disguise. It's, his ball toss is the same whether he's going wide, tee, body, both on the juice and outside. Like, you, you know, I, I can't, can't really tell where he's going. Obviously, he has patterns and I can kind of pick up on that. But yeah, yeah, it's so tough. He's, for me, he's got one of the best serves that the game has seen. So, so yeah, returning the serve, yeah, it's different because it's from a dead ball as well. So, you know, it's not like he's having to react to the ball I hit. He, when you're that good at serving, you can just place it wherever you want. So, yeah, amazing. Incredible. Amazing. Okay, so number three. Number three, I guess this is mainly for more well, I guess it's for all players. It's the height of the ball over the net. So I think what I mean by that, on TV, sometimes we look at it and we think, oh, they're absolutely crunching the ball and it's so hard, which, which they are. But the margins that they're giving themselves is, is unbelievable. It, you know, I mean, I think the best example I can give is I was practicing with Nishikori at Wimbledon in uh, this year. And he's hitting the ball with great shape over the net. So you just can't really, I say you can't miss just giving himself margins on every ball he hits. So he has that ability to stick in the rally. Novak's also great at this. It's just that ability to stick in the rally and have unbelievably good shot tolerance. So the ball's actually going a lot higher over the net with good, good shape than a lot of people think. And then when they need to step up, they can just flatten it out and have that ability to kind of be aggressive on it and come forward. So so they're, what, they're hitting the ball about three and a half foot over the net. Would that be right? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, something like that. It, it's just having, especially in singles, it's a lot of matches you're going to have a period where you're just going to have to almost say to yourself, right, okay, I'm just going to have to shape the ball a bit more and, and get a bit of consistency here. And they can just do it like that and then just almost won't miss. And that's, you know, not necessarily the like, top, top guys, but even if you watch guys that are like 50, 60 in the world, they're all unbelievable at doing that. Just brilliant. Just absolutely brilliant at, at that shot tolerance. It's just amazing. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. And what about, okay, so they've neck clearance. They also give themselves a lot of line clearance where they play down the center a lot more than we think. That was actually my number four. Great. So nice segue. Great. Yeah. My, my number four was they don't really go for line. They don't need to hit line. You know, they will give themselves a lot of margin for error on the width of the court. So, um, if they're not going, going center, then they're going maybe, you know, half a meter away from the line. So again, having that shape on the ball and giving yourself margins, you know, it's, it's actually tough to miss especially at that level when they're that talented. That's why you see matches go on for hours and hours. And you know, whenever Novak plays Rafa, the margins they give themselves, or, or Fed plays Rafa, whoever, you know, the rally's got rages because they're also fearful that, you know, they don't want to go for line because if they start missing and they, let's say, get broken, they know how good the other players are, that it's going to be tough to get that break back. So they want to give themselves that margins as well. Yeah, it seems to be a fine line between giving themselves the margin, but not giving, but keeping the depth there and not giving too much away because you give these guys 
anything, a sniff of a short ball, and they just move that's forward it. so good. That's exactly it. You know, that's why I think for me, why I put my depth of shot as number one is because in practice, yeah, you know, I've experienced it in practice, but, you know, in a match, it's, I can see how important it is because you're right. These guys, I mean, Federer is just, for me, one of the best at it. If you give him a sniff of a short ball or anything he feels like he can come forward on, He's going to pounce on it, and that's what makes makes the difference between like the you know the Federer's and then maybe the guys that are trying to really crack the top 100. Is Federer will really take advantage of uh, of those shorter balls? Yeah, he crucifies you. So number five. So number five is the foot speed, and again, what I mean by that is the ability to when they are on defense get out the corners really quickly. Like again, just the lateral movement. It's, it's incredible. I, whenever I was, I do a lot of drills with a lot of the players where I'd be on top, the coach would feel me like a like an easier ball in and then I'd be the aggressor. And I'd put them, pin them in the corner and they'd, they'd get it back well. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I thought I'd hit a winner and then they'd be just out there and they're playing another normal rally ball. So just their foot speed across the ground, both coming forward and then also laterally, is you have to hit five or six winners against these guys to actually win the point. I think that's the best way I can put it just their ability to stay in the rally with, with the speed is, is incredible. And obviously, some guys are quicker than others, you know. No, that's probably a bit quicker than someone like a, you know, is now because there's different game styles. But yeah, when I've been with the guys that, you know, like Nishikori's, Novak or, or people like that, they're so quick. Well, it's the speed and also their anticipation is unbelievable. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It's there. They anticipate where the next ball's going before almost I've even hit it. And again, Nishikori for me is the one that I feel like was just crazy good at that. Just, I've never, I never felt like I was actually on the front foot, even if I guess he thought I was. <laughs> um, and that's a testament to how quick he was. Well, that's crazy. I did. I'm not sure if you saw the ATP Cup last week, and I saw. I only got into it late on, but I saw a lot of Alex de Minoir, and that guy is oh, yeah. an absolute yeah. rocket. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. And that's, but that's a testament to how quick he is, but like you say, also a testament to how good he is at anticipating the next shot. And the athletic, athleticism is incredible, but, but yeah, his anticipation is almost just as good. Foot speed is very important, whether you're moving forward or sideways, and being able to hit the right shot off it and buy themselves time and get back in the rally and put you under pressure again. All these players, can, everything that I've said so far, can do all of the things almost as one. So, you know, they're under pressure and they're out wide. Their depth of shot after that is amazing. The variation of spin they can put on that is brilliant. Their height over the net is perfect. They're giving themselves so much margin for error and they're really quick. All these top guys do all of these things so well, which makes them you know, the best players in the world. Very true. Very true. Okay, so six, Mike. What's your number six? So my number six, I've gone for Sitsipas. So I've said consistent tempo on strike. So whenever I've everyone that I've played played with, I feel like he's the one that's just put me under so much pressure with the tempo. His tempo, his his rally ball feels like for me as if I was hitting a short ball and really you know nailing the ball. The speed of shot and his the, the quickness of his racket head that comes through is just unbelievable. It's so tough to deal with, and even when you're in a corner, sometimes just trying to get the ball back to good depth myself, it, it, it's really really tough. He hits the ball so hard but yet so consistent and it doesn't look it just looks effortless it doesn't look rushed at all 
And those, the ACP finals, those courts at the O2 were incredibly quick as well. So it was so tough to deal with. So yeah, like the consistent tempo of his strike, the consistent speed that he could hit the ball at was, yeah, it was crazy. Absolutely crazy. I say between the ball height, you had the perfect ball height bounce at, in London as well. As you say, the courts are really quick. So yeah. probably it was one of his aides in helping him win the tournament, which was very impressive. He was really good. Sounds like the way you describe yeah. it, it's a bit like you're in a boxing match and you're in the wrong weight division and the guy's just coming at you left, yeah. right, left, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, he was just, you can see why, why he is, you know, predicted to be kind of, the, you know, the next gen, the next big thing, him and, with, you know, with Zverev and people like that. Because his his athleticism for a guy that's also he's like six foot five is is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable tennis player. Great. Okay, so moving on from Sitsipas's consistent tempo, number seven. The number seven is just simple patterns of play. Um, the one thing that I've noticed, and this goes for every single player that I've played with, is they do the basics unbelievably well. There's no, there's no secret secret to this. There's no like there's complicated drills. There's no you know things that blow your mind. It's just they will do the basic things just so well. You know whether it is right. Okay, when you're on the juice side, I want you to serve wide and then get on your forehand and go playing inside out. They'll do it. You know, and that's just what I you know when I was a young junior or what, you know when I was in college, those were the patterns we would do. And you'd almost think to yourself, well, hang on a minute, surely they do something different because they're so much better. Well, they don't. They just do the basics so much better than everyone else. Um, you look at Novak, for me, is a prime example. You know, Whenever you watch him play, we're, we're mind-blown and it is incredible the way he plays. But what he does so well is he just gets great depth and is absolutely so consistent. And he just practices the basic things, whether, whether that is cross-court, and up down the line, you know, it, for me, that's the one thing that was a big eye opener is they actually don't do anything that you think, well, hang on a minute, I know I can do that, albeit nowhere near as good, but they don't do anything you know, unbelievably special. Yeah, interesting, true. They're just really, really good at doing the, the really, really simple things. Yeah, just completely and, and happy to almost do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Again, that's a testament to their discipline. Great. Okay. Well, you obviously, you need that to be anyway a successful player. You need to be able to do those simple things really well. Number eight, Mike. Number eight is the serve. I think for me, it's probably the most important shot, especially in the men's game. It's just even the players that you might think might not have like a very strong serve or, you know, it might be they're a weak part of their game. It's actually, for me, again, like, they still serve incredibly well. So I practiced with Schwartzman this year at, at Wimbledon as well. And, and his serve for a small guy, okay, albeit you know, might not be like a, you know, Evo Karlovic or someone, but the accuracy on the serve is second to none. Just absolutely brilliant. He can, you know, pinpoint his serve where he wants it. And it's not just him, there's a lot of others, both both men and women. Yeah, it's just such an important shot because at the end of the day, that's how you start off the point in service game, you know. <laughs> Uh, you've got a, a, an immediate advantage before before the point has even started if you if you're a good accurate server. And again, this is also goes for Federer. One of the reasons he has been so successful is because of how good his serve is. Yeah, very true. And he doesn't have the biggest serve in the world either. It's just an average no. pace serve. But 
it just shows the importance over accuracy and consistency over speed. It's more important. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Great. And would they do anything specific in the practice sessions on the serve? Or is it just, look, we're just warming up the serve? So, I mean, the match, so the match warm up, so the the 30 minute slot that they get or so on the day of their match, it's just kind of getting some rhythm, loosening the shoulder. When I've been with players on the day off, it's very much like they will serve, you know, in relation to the tactics of the player that they're playing next. So if that is, you know, you know, they, they're playing someone that maybe has a weaker backhand and they'll do a lot of serves if they're a righty that goes on the due side that will, that will go down the tee or, or, or vice versa. So yeah, they'll do a lot of it based on who they're playing, depending on where they serve. But, but in general, yeah, it's a lot of serving and just hitting the spots on, on, on both sides. Great. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, the importance of serve. It's really important. Number nine, Mike. Kind of feeds into what we were just saying is, is, that tactic, that that clear, direct game plan. This goes through. I've been been lucky enough to be on court with quite a few players where I can kind of listen into and get an idea of what their game plan might be depending on who they're playing. And it's just having a complete, clear mind as to what you want to do in that match. And again, it's nothing special. It's just a few patterns that they've looked at that they're thinking, okay, this is how we can exploit this opponent's weaknesses and this is how we can kind of go about and win this match and yeah it's fascinating for me to hear like what what they say when when they play certain players and, and how they're going to go about winning that match and yeah so just having that clear and direct game plan which consists of three or four points for me is it, yeah I just always again I always thought it might be something a little bit more more you know I don't know extravagant but it is just three or four things that they're going to look to do in the match um, and then reassess when they're in the match so once they win their previous round match, they go into strategy mode and then every bit of day off, anytime they're on court, they're quickly working on tactics for the next round. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, they'll let's say they win, for, for example, then they'll go over the match in the evening and then as soon as you're back on the practice court the next day, if you know who you're playing, then yeah, it's, it's right, okay, how are we going to come up with a game plan to, to, yeah, to win the next match? And tell me, I'm not sure if you know, we sell a match and practice journal that players write their, their pre-match and pre-practice and post-match and post-analysis plans in and reviews yeah. and everything. Do you ever see a player use a journal? I haven't seen a player use a journal, but I have seen a few players record their match results and write. So yeah, a journal, they don't necessarily do it for practice, but for matches, they'll write down kind of the results, the score, maybe a few little pointers. So then if they play that person or that doubles team or whatever again, they can then refer back to it. Say, okay, this is what I did last time. I won, I lost. This is what I did well. This is what I probably didn't do so well. So I've seen them kind of record results from matches there, but not necessarily too much in practice. But again, that could be a lot of the stuff that they do in their off-season. That's one of the reasons for a match journal where you obviously you go out with a plan, you write it down, but then you go on, you see what you did wrong, you'd see what you did right. And also sometimes something comes in the middle of the match, just clicks. And you may play that person yeah, again it. and completely forget that until you're halfway through the match and it clicks again. So I think writing that stuff yeah. down is really important that you can start your next match playing yeah. that guy because most of the time you play the same people over and over again. That's it. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And you're right. There's a lot of the time, you know, you know when I said before, having that clear and direct game plan, sometimes that game plan in the match just isn't going well and, and you're down, you're, you're losing. You've got to be, you kind of got to be willing to adapt. But also, like you say, there might be a point in the match where you think, oh, hang on a minute, I've seen something here and then that can just completely change change the tempo and the outcome of the match. 
Yeah, loads of times even you hit a shot by mistake in a match and you realise, yeah. oh, that slice actually worked there. And yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Dave O'Hare in our last podcast talks about it. Yeah, can can just change matches. Having the ability in, in a match to also adapt and, and recognise that it's not going well, I think is really important because, you know, there's, you know, and I'm guilty of doing it. I've been in matches where I'm down and I haven't actually changed the way I play and consequently I end up losing the match. Whereas, you know, there's also been matches where I've changed the way I've played and all of a sudden I come back and I win the match. So I think it's just giving yourself a chance if you change the way you play, giving yourself a chance of actually winning the match. Because sometimes if you're doing the same things and they're not working, then you know you need to change something. You're, you're too thick-skinned. You're like, I'm not. I'm going to find my way out of this hole. Yeah, that's it. It's, I think it's, so, it's acceptance as well. It's accepting that right. Okay, I'm not better than this guy right now. You know, or this girl right now. This they are beating me. I need to change something instead of saying to oh no, you know, my level is good enough. It will come eventually. Well, you know tried, you know, that first tactic that you wanted to employ, it's probably not working. So things need to change. Very, very true. And that's why it's great to have a game that you can, you may have your favorite shots, but that you can play every shot comfortably and be able yeah, to hit slice in all directions and be able to hit different types of forehands, different spins. And all of a sudden, then you can ch- start changing stuff around. But there's a lot of players out there who are a bit one dimensional. And when things get tough, I think you get into a bit of problem then. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, these top guys, that if plan A doesn't work, but let's say plan B was to, I don't know, attack the backhand with their forehand, if their forehand, you know, isn't firing or they haven't practiced enough, then you can't really implement plan B because you don't feel confident doing it. So they're so good because if they need to go to plan B, plan C, whatever, they have the ability uh, to do that. So Yeah, no, it's very true, very true. So, Mike, number 10... So number 10, and I think, the one, again, this is what I've seen from when I've watched them play after I've practiced with them. It's just the pure, utter belief and confidence they have in winning. There's a select few players which I, that, that I look at, and I think you know, with the Nadars, the Djokovic's, even Serena Williams as well, she's brilliant at it. They just have this inner belief that regardless of you know, maybe how they're feeling or, or, or how they practice before, that they're going to go into a match and they're going to win. You know, it's just as simple as that. They just have this inner belief that is they go into this zone where you just, it's, yeah, it just become an artist at another level. They just have this complete and utter belief and confidence that they're going to win on any given day. Is it different to a cockiness? A little bit, but I think a lot of the top players almost have a bit of cockiness, a little bit of arrogance. I think they need that. I think they need that because generally anyone you're playing also has that as well. You know, I think they know they're good. You know, I think that's the biggest thing is they, they know they're good. They might not need to tell people that they're good because they can prove it with the way they play, but they know they're good enough to, to, to win whatever, whether it's slams, whether it's masters, 1000s, whether it's ATP 500s, whatever, whatever the goal is, they, they know they can do it. And I think it's that slight confidence, little bit of arrogance, cockiness that actually in a way makes them really hard to beat. True, I suppose they've been the best their whole life as well. They don't just show yeah. up in the world's top ten. They they were the best juniors in their country, in their age, in their country. 
then they're up and coming players. It's rare that a guy just shows up out of nowhere and goes, lands and goes, hey, I'm top 10 here, top 20 or top 30. They've all, they've been known, just like the guys, most of them would know each other. Obviously with the with the Federer and Tsitsipas, there's the age gap is too big, but like the Federer, Nadal's, Djokovic, they know each other from juniors and they go back. So they've always been, they've always been the best. Yeah, and I think if you have that mentality throughout your junior career and then going into your senior career, I think the top guys generally expect to succeed. They expect to be number one in the world. They expect to be winning slams. And I think when you have that expectation and that willingness to do basically anything to get there, you do have a little bit of bit of cockiness, a bit of arrogance about you. And uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think there's a fine line, but I do think that having that as a top, top pro, yeah, it's a good thing in my opinion. Great, Mike. There were 10 great tips, insights there from playing with the pros. As you say, uh, they don't do anything magical. These things are pretty straightforward. And sometimes you just need to be reminded of these things. So look, it's not a complicated game. You, it's a game of simple things that you got to do really well. That's exactly it. It's just having that ability to make sure that that you do everything really, really well. All the basics are done really well. If you can create a good foundation for yourself and and do all the basics well, then you're going to be you're going to be a top player. Yes, true. So people listening, start doing the simple things really well, Mike. So what's your plan now moving forward for 2020? Yeah. So like I said, I've been helping helping out a few few players players in Spain for the last. Well, I mean, just about ten days, and then I'm going to be at the Roland Garros as a hitting partner. If it's not with a player, it will be be at the tournament, also at Wimbledon again. And I've got quite a few other tournaments uh, that I'm that I'm going to be at. And there's a few uh, few agents that I'm talking to with a few there's a few players that are interested in potentially potentially doing a few tournaments as well. Um, so so yeah, it's exciting times, and well, hopefully I'll be able to see the Australian Open next year. So yeah, that's the plan at the moment. This day last year, I left for the Aussie Open. I'm so upset. This year, I'm not going. But I'll be back down there next year. And it means we're not going to the Aussie Open. I can possibly do a few more tournaments then moving forward. So really excited. Hope might see you out in one of them. I'll look out for you. Working hard. Working hard on the practice courts. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully you'll see me out there. It's one that I really, really do want to go to. I'm frustrated that I didn't get a schedule this year, but hopefully next year. Yeah, no, you love it down there. It's just a magical place. And I recommend, I've said it before, recommend everybody get down to Australia at some stage. It's a great trip and well worth it. Great, Mike. Well, look, uh, thank you very much. And yeah, we'll follow your journey online. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been good talking to you. I hope you found Mike's insights really useful. I certainly did and will give food for thought to my next practice sessions and practice sessions throughout the year. Now, if you check out the webpage, functionaltennis.com forward slash Mike, we'll have these 10 points written up there and you'll also be able to download them. As usual, if you're new to the podcast, hit the subscribe button. If you know anybody who may be interested in it, please hit the forward button and share it with them. And until next week's episode, get out there and hit some tennis balls. Bye.